Hey, hey, welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, October 9th, 2023. We have a very interesting topic today, marijuana slash cannabis use in pregnancy. And I'm joined by a terrific MFM from Utah, Dr. Tori Metz. Tori and I go way back, and she has done a lot of interesting research on the effects of cannabis on pregnancy and on fetal development, and she also has a terrific personality. Very cool. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's podcast. All right. As I mentioned last week, I want to welcome all the toasters who came on board as listeners over the past month after hearing or watching me on The Toast last month. As I also said last week, nothing could have possibly prepared me for the fame and fortune of being a guest on The Toast. Never in my life have I impressed so many millennials at once. Thanks, Jackie, for having me on the podcast, and thanks to all of you for tuning in to Healthful Woman. We're really happy to have you on board. Reminder, for anyone listening on Apple or Spotify, we would really appreciate it if you could rate this podcast, preferably with five stars. Also, reminder, please send us any questions you might have for our mailbag. You can either email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com or go to our website, www.healthfulwoman.com and click on the link that says send us your questions. Also, if you want to pre-order the book that Emily Oster and I wrote, The Unexpected, we have a link on our website. Please do take a look and order many, many copies. All right. Thanks for listening. See you all next week. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Tori Metz, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. I really appreciate it. How you doing today, my friend? <laughs> I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. So we've known each other for a while now, I guess, in our escapades through the, the I don't know, the journey of MFMs in the country and various meetings and conferences and fellow retreats. It's been a while. Yes, we have. I Hopefully I'll get to see you soon. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta be nice to see you, see you walking around in your bright orange Bronco jersey, pick you out of a crowd. It's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's great. I see. I feel like I've seen you grow up from a young fellow to like czar of the world in MFM. You're 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 a big honcho now. Uh, well, thank you, Nadie. It's 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 honestly it's it's fun. It's it's awesome to uh, have a chance to do research in obstetrics, to teach young fellows in obstetrics. And, you know, practice clinical medicine and see my patients. Yeah. It's pretty great. Good stuff. So for our listeners, you are an associate professor of OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine at Utah. You are also a researcher. You are an editor of the Green Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the top of the food chain journal for our field. And you are a Denver Broncos fan, if I'm correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all true. Although the last one is hard to admit to lately, but hopefully it'll be better this year. But well, yes, you 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 had some good you had some good runs in your lifetime, which is it's true. better than I can say is being a Bears fan. It's been a long time for us, so so it's all good. Give us a little bit of background about yourself, sort of you know where you're from and how you made your way to where you are today. I guess either geographically, academically, however you want to put that together. 
Yes, I grew up in Colorado and I did undergraduate at University of Colorado Boulder and medical school in Denver and then did residency also in Colorado. So you can see why I'm a Broncos fan. <laughs> and then I did fellowship in Utah and, you know, practiced in Denver for a while and I'm now back in Utah. And that is mostly related to trying to do more clinical research and the opportunities that I had there. But I am an Intermountain West kind of gal. So <laughs> it's been good. <laughs> How did you get interested in medicine in the first place? Oh, geez. I am one of those people who, from the time of being able to articulate my career path, said I was going to be a doctor. And I don't, I can't really tell you why I don't have doctors in the family. That was just something that I aspired to do. And knowing you for a while, you know that I work hard to achieve my goals, I guess, <laughs> straight away from it a little bit in undergrad, I would say, and considered maybe just, you know, doing chemistry in the lab, which is what my degree was in and decided that, no, I really enjoyed humans too much for that. And I went back to the plan to go to med school. So, and OB-GYN was definitely not the plan initially. I had planned to do emergency medicine and mm. just loved OBGYN. I loved the combination of delivering babies, being able to operate and having continuity with patients uh, in a good way through some really joyful and sometimes some really sad times. And that's what ended up uh, eventually then pushing me into maternal fetal medicine. Well, I, I can't see you in a lab. You really are a little too <laughs> little too boisterous, I would say, to be cooped up in a lab. It would be it would be yes. it would be a shame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it was a good it was good. I went back to, to medicine. I think it was a little bit of a oh geez, that's a really long path, it turns out. And can I really get into medical school? More of you know, life questions that were emerging when I was whatever that is, nineteen twenty. So Wow. I'm glad I did it. Cool. And how are you how are you enjoying life in Utah? It is great. We have an amazing division of MFM faculty there and we are doing, I think, great work in the department and in our community. And I am doing a ton of research and have had a lot of opportunities both through grant funding and just, you know, opportunities through the, the Green Journal or Obstetrics and Gynecology that you mentioned to really just expand reach there. And I think hopefully make a big difference in how people are managed nationally and making sure that, you know, patients are getting the best care that they can. Yeah. And then one of the things that you sort of pivoted to in recent years is you became really knee deep in COVID and pregnancy. Yeah. It was one of yeah. your, your big passions or maybe just responsibilities that got thrown on you. I don't really know what, what happened there. How did you get, <laughs> how did you get so ingrained in all of the, I mean, it was everything. It was advocacy. It was research. It was, you know, yeah. just discussion about COVID. What, what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I think that was really initially led by the fact that I was act director of our labor and delivery unit at that time. And it was one of those things where as COVID started to be present in the United States, honestly, you know, predominantly initially in New York, as you know, mm. we were just trying to learn about it and what people were doing about it and what we needed to do about it to keep our patients and, and staff safe. And there were just so many unknowns at that time um, that, you know, clinically I was working to take care of and administratively working to take care of our, our team. And so that, you know, then inspired, well, we just need to know more about this so that we can educate people and that sort of launched the research aspect of that. So I proposed a study to the National Institute of Child Health and Human Development or NICHD, Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network, which is a big 
Clinical Trials Network to say, you know, we we as a, as a group, since we're established research infrastructure, established centers, need to try to to figure this out so that we can provide information to our patients and we can provide information to clinicians out there. And, you know, they said, yep, we need to do that study. And the NIH funded it. And, you know, then I just kind of, people then looked at me, oh, you know, Tori knows all the literature. Tori knows she's an expert in, in COVID. And then, I, you know, just sort of ramped up from there. I think people were looking for expertise in that area, people who had really delved into everything that was out there and, and knew how to take that information and try to put it into clinical policies and use it to think about how we were taking care of patients. And so that's, I think that just kind of became, you know, just the spiral. And then once we started doing that, you know, I received some other funding that for a study that's now ongoing where we're looking at long-term outcomes of people who had COVID in pregnancy and both for them and their kids, their offspring. And so that that's an ongoing study that was also funded through the, the NIH. And so that's that's kept me busy from from sort of all the ways from, you know, clinical work, research work, administrative work for really a couple of years during the pandemic and and is ongoing now. So it, it took me away from my cannabis research for a little bit. <laughs> how but yeah, how how much how much did you get roped in like politically in terms of like, you know, either statewide or national wide? Yeah, I mean, I did a lot of public health messaging in, in the state, as well as nationally, a lot, honestly, related to vaccination and mm-hmm. pregnancy, you know, about the concerns that, you know, pregnant people were getting very ill with COVID more so than non-pregnant people, which we see with, you know, the majority of viruses, that there was a lot of, you know, vaccine hesitancy from people who are pregnant just because we didn't, you know, as a new vaccine type and vaccine, you know, pregnant people weren't in in the original trials of the vaccine. And so for a lot of reasons, you know, patients were worried about being vaccinated, but even as we got information that said it was safe, we still saw a lot of hesitancy. So I did a lot of outreach in our communities, was interviewed a fair amount nationally, just to talk to people about what we knew and what we didn't know, you know, and, and encourage them that that was the safest thing for them. It was uh, it was pretty cool to see you quoted CNTV, see you radio Mm -hmm. see you in articles i'm like oh i know her i've known her for so long that's funny (laughs) it's all good i mean i I, obviously you were you were highly capable uh, and qualified Mm -hmm. to do it it's always just a treat though and then the big i guess my personal interaction with you as the covid czar was every like four days i would get a green journal email from you saying Someone needs to review this and it needs to be done within two days. I'm like, great, thanks. Yes, yes. And I think that was actually sort of my... Yes, yes. And we thank you for doing that very much. I think it was, you know, that was our effort to really get the information out as quickly as possible. You know, a lot of times with the scientific journals, we receive information, we send it out for peer review. That takes a few weeks. We make a decision, the authors revise it. That takes a few weeks. It takes a while to get it to press. So it's, you know, it ends up being like ultimately several months from the time something happens till it appears, which is actually pretty fast in our journal actually compared to to a lot of other journals, but we want it to be even faster with this, you know, get the information out. So I was appointed as the, you know, ad hoc editor at that time to review all the COVID articles that were coming in because I did know what was new, what was important, you know, what do we need to get out quickly? What do we want to send out for peer review now? And then 
fast track. And I thank you for, for being on the reviewing end of those things. I hope that it was helpful to, you know, the scientific community as well as all of the patients out there. Well, yeah, I definitely wasn't thinking altruistically. I'm like, man, if I'm doing this, I'm totally rope, <laughs> roping her into the podcast. She can't say no now. You know, like, all right, yes. I'll review, I'll review this, I'll review this damn paper, you know, out of, out of China and you better, you know, come on the podcast. Yes. So first of all, I'm going to ask you about the whole topic, but we, we were talking offline before, you know, the title of this podcast is saying, talking about marijuana use and pregnancy. And you were yeah. saying that we really should try to pivot away from that. So just tell me what, you know, we were talking about before, tell our listeners, I guess we were talking about before. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a strong movement in the research community, as well as, you know, among substance use experts, substance use disorder experts who really want everybody to move to the term cannabis instead. And I think that's, you know, marijuana has been sort of a, a vague and, and stigmatized term in its history as this, you know, became a, a drug that a lot of people were using, especially sort of in the 80s and 90s kind of time frame. And so I think that now, you know, people are really trying to move towards using this term cannabis, which is what we're talking about when we say marijuana more vaguely so that people can, you know, just use a more scientific term, a preferred term, rather than this sort of catch-all stigmatized term that that existed previously. Okay. So we're going to, in the podcast, we're going to refer to cannabis, but I mean, we're talking about the same thing, essentially. It's the same, you know, substance, but you know, whether, you know, again, it's, it could be, you know, smoked, it could be ingested. However, we're going to talk about all that, but we're going to use the term cannabis. Now, yeah. how did you get interested? I'm not going to say in this, but in research on this, I'm not going to ask about your personal uh, life. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tori, tell, um, tell me about your patterns through high school, if you don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> I became interested in research in this, honestly, similarly to the way I became interested in looking at COVID. I mean, it's things I was seeing in a clinical environment that then made me have questions that then I really couldn't answer when patients asked me about them and any kind of evidence-based way or based on any science. It just wasn't available. And so, you know, when cannabis became legalized in Colorado, which was one of the first two states to legalize cannabis, I was there at that time practicing at Denver Health uh, Medical Center and, and the University of Colorado Hospital. And a lot of patients just started to ask, is it okay to, to use cannabis during pregnancy or use marijuana during pregnancy? And I'm I mean, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't really know the answer to that. And I don't really know how to counsel you at that time. You know, there, there are data that were available, most of it from sort of that 1980s, 1990s timeframe. And at that time, you know, they, you know, they, they did sort of, it looked like there was maybe a effect on fetal growth or, you know, growth of the baby in utero and, but not really a lot else. There's a lot of conflicting studies. You know, some said, yes, it was associated with preterm birth. Some said it wasn't. People are really sort of still clinging to this quote Jamaica study that I'm sure people have heard about if they've, if they've looked at this literature at all, which is, you know, really small study of 24 kids that were sort of selected in a very biased way that, you know, without any kind of sort of adjustment for any of the other environmental factors that said, oh yeah, their outcomes were the same or better when they were exposed to cannabis in utero. And so it was just really hard to, to boil down all that, that literature that was out there. And my former 
well, now my current chair, but my, my mentor, my mentor in fellowship, Bob Silver, called me up and he's, he was still in Utah at the time and said, Tori, I think you need to study cannabis and pregnancy. And I'm like, ah, I, I don't know, you know, Bob, that doesn't really sound like, you know, what I necessarily want to do. I'm not an expert in substance use. And he's like, but like, we just don't know the answers here. And, you know, this is going to become legal everywhere. And, and like many things, Bob, Bob was right. <laughs> and um, I said, okay, you know, I'll start looking into it. And, and honestly, that's how I started, you know, studying it. And it just takes so long to do studies. And there's a lot of barriers to studying drugs in pregnancy, not surprisingly, right? Mm -hmm. Patients don't want to tell you about use in pregnancy. There's a lot of stigmatization to that. There's a reporting laws that then, you know, require researchers to, you know, report them for drug use in pregnancy. And so there's just a lot of things that had to be worked through. So honestly, the first, the first few years I was studying this was a lot of just working with the IRB or the Institutional Review Board about how we can do human subjects research in this area. How can we do that and protect the participants and, you know, get the answers that we need. And so it's just been a long, it's been a long ramp up because people know, oh, that was like 10 years ago that that was legalized. Why don't we know everything now? Well, this is why. I mean, it just takes time to do the studies that we need to do to answer these questions. Yeah. I I mean, I think that for our listeners, it's really important to, to sort of talk about that because I mean, this is new, right? So these, this is not, yeah. there was not a lot of research being done, but even just take things that have been around forever, right? Alcohol, yeah. smoking, various medications, you know, for whatever reason, it's so hard, even if they're like, like prescribed by doctors, forget about like used generally to know what the effects are in pregnancy precisely because the only way to really know for any substance, so let's say for cannabis is you have to, make sure that it's that substance versus something else going on in their life. So how do you do that in research? We take a lot, a lot, a lot of people, let's say, you know, 20,000, and we randomly divide them into two groups, right? We don't pick by anything. It's literally random, like lottery. And half of you are going to give X amount of cannabis every day in pregnancy or during the first trimester, whatever you want to study. And the other half, we're going to give some sort of placebo, though I'm not really sure how you could not have people know what they got, but whatever. And right. then, and yeah, how do you feel? Pretty damn good. Yes. All right. Yeah. <laughs> so, all right. And then after that, after birth, you take the 20,000 babies or whatever it is and follow them till they're like 18 and see how they do in neurodevelopmental scores and this and that and, you know, health and all that stuff. And then you go back and say, all right, we're the ones who are exposed to the cannabis, better, worse, or the same than the others. Like that's how you would have to do it. Now, obviously that's not been done. That's never going to be done. It's not right. Yeah. And and listen, and that's, it's basically true for alcohol. It's true for most medications we use. It's, It's true for almost everything that we look at. And so the only way to study it is to go backwards and say, okay, here's 10,000 kids whose mothers did use it and 10,000 kids whose mothers didn't. But then you're like, well, are we really right? Are the ones who right. didn't do it, right. did, were they just lying? Like maybe maybe 10% of them were doing it, but didn't tell us, or maybe the other group. And then was the group who was using cannabis also smoking more, drinking more, and were they telling you about this? And, you know, yeah. were the kids whose mother used it, contested more? There's so much, you know, what we call, you know, in the research world, confounding, but, yeah. you know, you can call it in general noise in these studies right. to try to sift through that. And I don't want to say it's impossible because it's not impossible, but it makes it very challenging. And so how do you 
get past that when you're trying to come to an answer? Because people want to know, just like, tell me, is it safe or is it not safe? And if it's not safe, what are we talking about here? 1% risk, 50% risk. How do you try to even set something up that can answer a question like that? Yeah. I mean, you very you did a great job of explaining all of the issues that really sort of plague this research and our ability to clearly answer these questions. And I think that that leads to some frustration for patients, right? Well, why can't you just give me a clear answer on this? Um, and that's why. Doctors. This is why. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. But this is why. I mean, it's it's like it's it's messy. The studies that are available are messy. And we know that patients don't report cannabis use like we've studied this and, and so have others. And it, it probably underestimates use by at least two to three fold in some studies as much as tenfold. And so it's really hard to even sort of classify participants in studies into groups like, oh, yes, you were using cannabis, you weren't. Like if we rely on them telling us, it's not, it's just not a reliable way to categorize. So, you know, we're working through that. We have some funding to to look through that, which we can we can talk about more where we're actually doing, you know, sort of urine sampling on everybody in a de-identified way. So it's not harmful to anybody in terms of their, their broader life. But I, I think, you know, in, until we have those results, I think that, you know, the way that I counsel people is to sort of look at the the totality of the information that we have out there. And there's ways that we do that. You know, people do these these assessments called systematic reviews and where they look at all of the literature, scientific literature that's available and they sort of summarize it. They go through each study and they say, oh yeah, this is a study that tries to answer this question. This is a good study or it's a bad study, which we call, you know, rating the degree of sort of bias. And then we also look at sort of the differences between studies and sort of pool it all together in this meta-analysis, which is really a pooling of all the existing literature. And we say, yeah, we, we think that based on everything that's out there, the best answer right now is that, it, that, that this affects this outcome or that outcome. And people have done that with, with cannabis use and pregnancy in a variety of different meta-analyses, as well as, you know, the National Academy of Sciences has looked at this as one of their uh, topics that they deeply investigated and did their own systematic review. And, you know, there are a few things that come out that say, yes, this, this, this outcome, this bad outcome does seem like it's associated with cannabis use in, in pregnancy. And, and that's how I, and then I use that information really to counsel patients. So if you had to summarize now, again, this is just our current understanding based on the available science. What would you tell people are the risks of using cannabis in pregnancy and sort of the magnitude of it, you know, like how yeah. likely is it? If you had, if you had to just like rattle them off in a way that could be maybe understandable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, the, the main risk, the one that seems to come up over and over and, and comes up in every meta-analysis and came up in the National Academy of Sciences report is really that there's, there seems to be an effect on fetal growth. And so the growth of the baby in utero and in babies are smaller when they're exposed to, um, you know, cannabis during pregnancy. And people may say, well, you know, why, why does that matter? It's really a sort of a sign of how well the placenta is functioning. And it does make us concerned that there are, you know, potentially other adverse effects. We know that cannabis crosses the placenta, that is known. And so metabolites, you know, when, when a mother ingests cannabis, they go into her, their process, they go into her bloodstream, they cross to the, to the baby via the placenta. And so it's definitely plausible that, that those metabolites would affect the placenta and would, would potentially affect the fetus. And so we do see 
you know, differences in fetal growth. There seems to be a signal for an increase in uh, neonatal ICU admissions. Now that one is a little bit more, I would say, new or burgeoning. I mean, that's something that people hadn't really looked at in the past, but there's been several studies now that have shown an increased risk of neonatal ICU admission now, whether that's related to preterm births or other complications that honestly hasn't really been teased out. And then I think the the other thing that people really worry about, well, there's two. One is stillbirth. There's a there's a well done study that shows an increased risk of stillbirth. That one actually twofold increased risk of stillbirth. And that was a study that was done by the NICHD Stillbirth Research Network using, you know, biologic sampling data. So urine and and I'm sorry, actually for that, they use cord homogenate, so cord segments to look for cannabis metabolite. And they also sampled for tobacco, which is another big, as you mentioned, confounder or noise in these studies. You know, you want to make sure that this isn't a tobacco effect, that it's a cannabis effect. But they said, no, cannabis does seem to, you know, increase risk of stillbirth. And then, you know, finally, people really worry about neurologic development. And I think, you know, you mentioned that earlier, you know, neurodevelopmental outcomes. And that's, you know, that's something that people do worry about. I mean, we know that the metabolite crosses, we know that the endogenous cannabis system or the, you know, natural receptors for cannabis that exist, right? Everybody has these. That's why it has an effect when people ingest it. Those are very active normally in normal neurodevelopment of the fetus. And so there's concern that as these, you know, metabolites of cannabis from the outside come in and they interact with those receptors, they're supposed to be doing something else that they can sort of interfere with this normal neurodevelopment. And so there's been a lot of work, several large studies looking at neurodevelopment and whether cannabis has an effect on neurodevelopment. And those studies have shown that, yes, they it, they do. It, it does look at, like it does, but I will tell you that, you know, in the National Academies report, they said, well, but gosh, now we talk about a lot of noise, right? Right. Where... You know, these kids are now 10 years old. There's a million other things that have happened to them during that time. And how can we sort of tease out this cannabis effect? Yeah, that that that's a tough one. Do you, is there any evidence, at least with the NICU admission, that there's any addiction or dependence of the newborns to this? Like, you know, you can yeah. have that with narcotics, obviously. Yeah, yeah. There's not much out there on like a, a syndrome or a mm-hmm. described withdrawal, which is, you know, what we see with opioids. We see, you know, neonatal withdrawal. It it doesn't seem to be that. There are a couple of sort of very small observational cohorts that describe maybe a little bit more irritability, maybe a little more jitteriness, but not, you know, that has not truly been fully teased out. And I think that's, you know, that's where I say that's a little bit more of a emerging concept and why that would be you know, there's some controversy about that, but I think, you know, pretty solidly, you know, the concerns about growth mm-hmm. are there, the stillbirth concern is there. And then these neurodevelopmental questions, I think are really the three main areas that people worry about. Now, how do you counsel people if they might ask you, well, all right, that's what we have for all use, but is there any difference whether it's someone smoking versus edibles? Is there mm-hmm. any information on that or we just assume it's the same? Yeah, I think, you know, people definitely ask that. I will tell you that the data are really from the majority is from the 80s when people were smoking predominantly. Mm -hmm. I mean, edibles really weren't available at that time. But I would also tell you that as I've studied this, the majority of people are still smoking. You know, I think it's a it's a smaller portion of the population that's that's using these products as edibles. And the reality is that it's the same you know, it's it's just, it's all cannabis, right? It's all mm-hmm. THC that are giving people that the high that they're wanting, and it's THC metabolite. Whether you're 
taking that as an edible product or you're taking that as an inhaled product, ultimately you have metabolite in the bloodstream that metabolite is crossing to the placenta. And so, you know, I think we can extrapolate and say it, it, it probably doesn't really matter what form it is in. Now, in terms of the newer types of products and higher emphasis on CBD and all of these things, you know, I will, you know, the, the data that are out there are really for THC, which is the you know, which is the metabolite makes people high and, or, or the proportion of cannabis makes people high. And then the metabolite that we measure is, you know, a, a THC metabolite to look at levels, et cetera. And so I think, you know, the, the research really doesn't delve into the CBD, but also, you know, the reality is that these CBD only products are not CBD only, you know, they've actually looked at that and in, in places like Colorado where, you know, there are dispensaries and they're pushing out CBD only products and have found that they also have THC metabolite. And so again, that, that gets messy. And yes, the majority of the data are from people who have inhaled cannabis products, but you know, the metabolites end up being the same. And it, it seems like then biologically, you know, we'd expect to see the same effects from a pregnancy standpoint. Yeah. I was going to ask you for our, our uneducated listeners, the how do you describe the difference between THC and CBD and where they might get one or the other? Not logistically where yeah. they might get one. Not like, I don't need a phone number. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're just basically different components of the cannabis plant, you know, and I think CBD has become more of a mainstream extracted component of cannabis because of the initial work, you know, related to like Charlotte's Web, which I think, you know, a lot of people are familiar with where, you know, people began to investigate using the CBD component of cannabis plants to treat um, refractory seizure disorders and very specific seizure disorders actually in children. You know, subsequently there hasn't been, there there has been a lot of work, you know, looking at CBD as a, for various diseases, you know, a lot of neurologic disorders and really, you know, the data are pretty darn mixed as to whether it works at all. And so I think, you know, people still feel like perhaps it does for certain conditions, but that's why you're not seeing it more broadly in medical practice. You know, we're not prescribing CBD for all of these various ailments because as they've studied it, you know, with purified extract, you know, that has been sort of stamped by facilities that are certified to really get at that CBD component, we're just really not seeing that same treatment effect that, you know, people were hoping to see. It is interesting. And I was also curious from the studies, the studies that they're looking at and saying it seems to do this, it seems to do that. You can try to control for things like tobacco or alcohol Mm -hmm. or even maybe things like, you know, the age of the mother, maybe her, if you get her income, what zip code she lives in, you know, to try to get sort of some of the, what we call socio-demographic or other factors. But there just seems to be that unmeasured variable of someone's using this for a reason, right? And so there, that it, Again, not a reason like like why, but there's something about them that's linked to them using it that could also confound or be noise in things like the size of the baby, the chance of baby of neurodevelopmental. How do they try to tease that part out to know that this is real versus just noise? Because that seems that seems to be the hardest. Yeah, and that's I mean, that comes up with all medications yeah. in pregnancy, right? I mean, when we ever we study sort of the effects or potential adverse effects of a medicine in pregnancy, we have to consider why 
is the person using that medicine in the first place. You know, this comes up a lot with antidepressants. It also comes up with cannabis. And, you know, I'll tell you when I ask people in my practice, you know, who say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm using cannabis or I'm using marijuana. You know, I, you know, I query them as to what are they using it for? And, you know, in pregnancy, it's not typically because it's fun or, you know, because <laughs> they like to go out to parties. It's usually because they are, they perceive a benefit for something that's often anxiety, depression, nausea are the things that come up most often. And so I think it does become hard to tease those things out. And so people have tried to tried to look at this. They've tried to, what we say, adjust for or look at, you know, try to get rid of sort of this noise and really look specifically at the effect of the cannabis. But it is hard. And that's why a lot of these studies are criticized is that, well, you know, these groups of people are really just different. People who continue to use cannabis during pregnancy versus those who don't use cannabis in pregnancy are just different people. And it's just really hard to adjust for all of those differences between them to really get at the effect of cannabis itself. Yeah. It's, uh, listen, it's, it's not easy. It's hard. It's really hard to get, to get an answer here. And so what, what are you trying to do moving forward to, to answer this? Like what kind of research are you either doing or hoping to do uh, to try to get to this? Yeah. So the study that we're doing right now that we're funded to do is, is taking biologic specimens. So urine specimens from people who participated in a large cohort study where we basically, they enrolled and kind of followed them across their pregnancy. And they weren't following them to look at cannabis use. They were following them to look at their pregnancy outcomes and things that could influence pregnancy outcomes was the initial study. This was done nationally with 10,000 people who enrolled and, you know, they gave urine samples, they gave blood samples, they gave placenta samples, they filled out all these questionnaires about, you know, their stress and their depression and their anxiety. And so really tried to get just a comprehensive view of these patients' lives, what their pregnancy looked like, and then all the sampling throughout that time to then be able to sort of investigate these questions about, well, what things do influence pregnancy outcomes when we account for all this other stuff. And so those samples are now de-identified, meaning that I don't know who they belong to, which then allows me to study them and look at, look for drug use among those participants that then won't have, you know, ramifications for them. And I think that's that's a key for doing any sort of substance use research is, you know, making sure that when we're answering these questions, we're also protecting participants. And so now we have all these de-identified but linked data to be able to look at this and say, okay, we're going to sample the urine of these participants, which we are for all of the, for any drug use, and then and then be able to look at, did that drug use influence outcomes when accounting for all this other stuff that we know about these participants? And so that's the study that we're doing now. And we can look for, you know, cannabis, other drugs, alcohol, tobacco. So all of these things that that contribute to the noise that we see in these studies, we're hoping to be able to get a more clear answer as to whether, you know, cannabis use influences pregnancy outcomes. So that's exciting. And we're getting, you know, we have all of our data now and we're starting to analyze it. And I'm hoping it's going to really contribute to our knowledge in this area. That's pretty cool. Now, I want to ask you, so you're talking to someone and they're telling you that they're using cannabis because specifically it's the one thing that helps their nausea of pregnancy, or it's the one thing that helps their chronic pain that they've had pre-pregnancy, right? So when we look at something like alcohol, for example, and we look at the possible risks of alcohol and it, the data is 
pretty clear that at very, very low levels, there's not really a lot of risk. But the reason sort of the party lines don't use it at all is because, listen, there's just no benefit. Like there's no upside. So why take any risk on the downside? But if yeah. someone tells you that they have upside to using cannabis for those things, how do you approach it with them? Do you say, listen, you really got to stop or, you know, we're going to balance the risks to the benefits to you or how do you go about that? Because that's a tough one. Yeah, it is, it is a tough one. I do think that for a number of, of the, the things that people tell me that they're using cannabis to help, we we do have, you know, medications or other treatments that have been studied in pregnancy that we have a little more clear data on regarding safety and efficacy that I would rather they try. And so we just kind of talk through that, you know, especially for nausea. I mean, we have so much data on the drugs that we use, you know, as physicians and we prescribe for nausea and pregnancy that I would much rather have a patient try one of those both for safety and efficacy than, than cannabis. I mean, we don't have data saying that cannabis actually effectively treats nausea. You know, there's cross-sectional studies that actually say, you know, patients who are using cannabis have much higher rates of nausea and vomiting. Now, whether that's which one of those comes first, you know, that they're, right. they're, it's really bad. And so then they use it versus they use it and then it's really bad. It's hard to sort out. But, you know, we do have data saying that, you know, things like diclegis and Zofran and Phenergan are actually helpful for nausea. And so I try to have them use these other medications that we have more data on. Same thing with depression and anxiety. You know, I think a lot of patients suffer from depression and anxiety, I do hear a lot that they use cannabis to try to modulate that. And so, you know, talk to them about trying to use other medications that we have to treat that and psychotherapy and all the other tools that we have, you know, stressing the importance of proving maternal mental health and pregnancy, but, you know, that there may be other ways to do that other than cannabis. And, you know, I would say it, it's mixed. I mean, some patients, a lot of patients actually say, well, I didn't know there that we thought there were any risks to cannabis use in pregnancy. And when I even just kind of bring that up with them, they're willing to, to stop, you know, for other patients, that's, that's harder. But I think at least as clinicians, it's our job to at least start that conversation, offer safe alternatives and really, you know, at least talk about, yeah, we think that there are risks in terms of fetal growth, stillbirth, and then potentially these longer term neurodevelopmental effects. Well, Tori, thank you so much. Really, that's a tremendous amount of information in, in a short amount of time. And you're easy to talk to and you explain things well. And it's one of the reasons I like you. One of the many. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.